Thanks for joining us this week. We are in the midst of a discussion on spiritual gifts. Healing was one of the spirit-given powers given to certain members of the first century church of Corinth. How is this gift to be exercised then? And can we expect the Lord to miraculously heal today? Dave Wordson begins our discussion with a situation that almost all of us parents have faced. Your child is sick and you need a pediatrician. You're frantically trying to call the doctor and the child's turning blue, you know, because it doesn't have enough oxygen. Now under those circumstances, what daddy would not raise their son up from a bed of illness? And that's a powerful argument. The only problem with it is perspective is off. The issue is if I were a daddy that could take my son to live in a land where he would never be tempted again, he would never have to do battle with the evil one again, he could live not just by faith in my presence, but he could actually see me for the rest of forever. And I could show him all the wonders of my eternal kingdom. What daddy wouldn't take the child home? You see, that's what the Bible talks about. The whole dimension is different. And that's what's wrong with the American church. Our dimension is the good old USA. As American believers, we don't understand what the Bible's saying nearly as well as the third world people because they know they're not living on heaven on earth. But as Americans, sometimes we think we already have heaven. What the Bible says is, no, you don't. And what it says is, I think one of the greatest things I ever had told me about the gift of healing and about the whole issue of how God healed and whether or not he heals was an old Plymouth Brethren pastor, te well, teacher would be called in Plymouth Brethren circles, old Dr. Gibbs. I asked Alfred Gibbs one time, an old Englishman, I said, Dr. Gibbs, does God heal? He said, Dave, I, you bet he does. He has tremendous power to heal. And then he said this, Dave, I believe that God will heal me of every disease that I ever have on this planet until the last one. And then he's going to really do the job. And Dr. Gibbs is home with the Lord, so he knows the veracity of that statement. And that's the gift of faith. It's that ability to keep believing in the person of God at times to see God move in a miraculous way. And I think we should relate the gift of faith not just to physical healing as in the next gift of the gift of healing. I think we should also relate it to the whole vision of what God can do. I believe that the Lord can cause some of you to have a gift of faith. You can get a profound insight into what God wants to do for children in our community. In other words, the Lord can start to give you a burden. You can start to catch a vision of some of the things that God might want to do for kids in our community. And God will mobilize you in the body of Christ to do a great thing in that area. The Lord might lay it upon your heart in the area of working with teenagers. I don't know. But I think that's what the gift of faith is involved. My dad, as a young believer, had a belief that God wanted to do something for teenagers. He wanted to raise up a camp just for teenagers where they could come and they could really hear the Word of God. 
And the Lord miraculously blessed that dream. And now there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young people that have been touched by the Lord in that particular area of need. Bill Bright was a young Christian worker at UCLA University. And he had a belief that God could reach college students on the UCLA campus. And he developed a little booklet, which at that time, when Bill first came to Word of Life, and I remember as a young kid, him training us in this booklet. He wasn't even that good a teacher. He was boring at times, kind of a quiet, laid-back guy. But he believed that God could make the gospel clear to university students. You now know Bill Bright is the founder of Campus Crusade that has literally gone into campuses around the world reaching people for Christ. I believe that's the gift of faith. It's the gift of mighty wonders, of workings, of God moving to bring spiritual vitality. I think sometimes we think of the gift of miracles being physical miracles, like Jesus walking in the waters. Well, that was really very much an exclusive reality of the life of Christ because He was God and He declared His control over nature. Some of his apostles did somewhat of a nature miracle. For example, when Paul was bitten by the viper on the island of Malta and he was not killed by it. Some of the apostles were given powers from the Holy Spirit as they gave us the revelation. But I believe that we as believers today need to have our eyes much more on the miraculous workings of God to bring spiritual life to people around the globe. Right here in our neighborhood, in, a, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, on to our nation, literally to all the world. It's hard for us to put more credence and more effort into spiritual needs than physical needs. But I believe that the gifts of faith, the gifts of healing, the gift of God's miraculous workings relate very much in our own day to that ability to, to be a part of what the character of God desires to do in the now. Let me just say one other thing about it. So the gift of faith is that special belief in the character of God, still depending upon Him like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Believing He can work, but still depending upon Him when He doesn't do exactly what we thought. The gift of healing is that ability to believe that God will bring physical healing into a special situation. But once again, not turning away from God if He doesn't necessarily do what we ask Him to do. That's not a cop-out. It is faith. The gift of miraculous workings relates to those special miracles that were done by the apostles, were done by some of the prophets of the New Testament. It would also relate in the New Testament to the area of exorcism. The gift of miraculous workings was often related in the area of exercising a demon. For example, you remember one day a father brought his son to Jesus Christ and the, the disciples tried to cast out the demon. They couldn't do it. The Lord came down and, and they said, why couldn't we do it? He said, this time, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. There was an intense spiritual warfare. And the gift of miraculous workings sometimes in the New Testament related to the gift of exorcism. Now when I say that, I want to give a balance once again. I think it's very easy to start seeing demons in everything. C.S. Lewis gave us some sage advice, which I've shared with you and I'll share with you again. The biggest temptations in the area of the study of Satan and of demons is not to believe that they're present at all, 
or to believe that they're present everywhere. To not believe that there is that reality at all is a deception. And the lion will get you. To believe that they're involved in everything will cause you to be deceived because you'll start to think that Satan is omnipresent and he is not. The balance is for us to realize that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. In reading in this area, the presence of legitimate demon possession is not nearly as prevalent as some people seem to think. Many, many times it's proven to be other kinds of disturbances. I believe that Satan activity is very present. Remember a few weeks ago I gave you a message where I highlighted some of the occult activity and some of the terrible violent crime that have been done in our area. You say, Dave, what should our response be to that? What you're doing is one of the most powerful responses you can have. If you do it in your home, it's one of the most powerful responses you can have. That is to praise and adore and to love from the bottom of your heart the living Christ. The worst thing you can do is to say it with your lips but not live it with your life. That's what produces a fertile ground for occult activity. But the gift of miraculous workings many times relates to the ability for exorcism. And what I would say is that greater is he that's in us and he that's in the world. The exorcism in the Bible do not take place because of some prolonged, elaborate, gothic ritual like some of you might have seen in the exorcist. You don't have a special group of people in the New Testament that went through some kind of a magical ritual. What you have in the New Testament is like the Apostle Paul in Philippi. A demon-possessed girl kept hollering out truthful statements to show you how deceitful Satan can be. She was hollering out, these are the servants of the living God. These are representatives of the true God. And Paul said in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And just like that, the demon had to submit to that authority. No elaborate ritual. No intricate gothic formulas. Just in the name of Jesus, the higher Lord of heaven and earth, stop influencing this person. So those three gifts relate gift of faith, the gift of healing, the gift of miraculous workings relate together. Then he closes by mentioning two gifts. And the last gift in 1 Corinthians 12 that he mentions was the problem child that we'll talk a whole lot more of in 1 Corinthians 14. But those gifts, the next four gifts that he mentions relate together. He mentions in verse uh, 10, he says, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the same spirit, and he gives to each one just as he determines. Now, he mentions the gift of prophecy, and we're going to look at that more carefully in chapter 14. In the New Testament gift of Corinth, it was the ability to speak inspired, intelligible revelation. The gift of tongues was the ability to speak inspired revelation in a foreign language that was not understood by the hearers. When we get to chapter 14, I promise that I'll talk about the debate between was it some heavenly ecstatic language or was it a foreign language that was a legitimate earthly language that the people had not studied and that they were just able to speak in it? There is a major debate over that issue. I think that we can, I'll tell you what I believe in the debate, but I think that we need to go to a deeper level 
of what Paul was getting at. And I'll try to warn you about some, some views about what tongues is and what it isn't and about its importance in your life. I think that's where the danger can lie. But we're going to get to that debate in chapter 14. For right now, I'll just share with you what my heart is about these areas. I think the gift of prophecy is intelligible, inspired revelation. I think the gift of tongues was unintelligible because it was a foreign language that was not understood. If I spoke to you in German, most of you would not understand. If I read some verses in Hebrew, you wouldn't understand it at all. It would just sound like gobbledygook. When you go to a foreign country, it sound, you just listen for hours to things that don't make any sense at all to you. And I believe that that's what the gift of tongues was. And on the day of Pentecost, which we'll look at carefully, that's what happened. 120 gifted, spirit-filled believers were able to communicate in all the dialects of the diaspora. And chapter 14 tells us why that was done, God's purpose in it. What I want to share with you is that whether or not that's true or not, whether or not there is an ecstatic utterance for right now, it's something I want you to hold on to. One thing I know for sure, tongues is not the sine qua non spiritual gift. If you don't speak in tongues, you can be just as Christ-like as a person who does. It's not that important. And I know that for sure. I'll go to the stake for that. I will not go to the stake for whether or not it was a foreign language or an ecstatic utterance. So you can have kind of a, a flow of my thought. What I know for sure, what I think is debatable. It's not debatable that tongues is an absolute sign of your baptism of the Holy Spirit and your spirituality. That is not biblical. And if you, anyone that will read the text carefully can see that. And that's what we're going to work on more. The problem with the Corinthians is that they made spirituality equal their giftedness. As we're going to learn, spirituality is not determined by our giftedness. It's determined by our character of love. It's not determined by how well I speak, but how kind I am. It's not determined by whether or not I can speak in a foreign language I never studied by a miraculous movement of the Holy Spirit, or that I can put my hands on people and I can heal them, if ever a church should know that those are not necessarily signs of spirituality, we should know that in the American church today. It's the kind of love and the kind of truthfulness and the kind of integrity that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. There's one other thing I want to talk about as we close, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 12, it says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. And what Paul is arguing here is that we are one body, and yet we have all different kinds of gifts. So we're all different kinds of spirit-filled, spirit-gifted believers. We're not all gifted to speak. We're not all gifted to serve. We're not all gifted to give wise advice. We're not all gifted to administrate. We're not all gifted to have helps. We're not all gifted to heal. We're not all gifted in all these different areas. But every one of us is especially fit into the body of Christ. Now he proves that point, number one, by saying that we were all baptized with the Holy Spirit and that's how we got into the body of Christ. Look what he says in verse 12, he says, So it is with Christ, for we, verse 13, for we were all baptized. How many of us? 
all of us. For we were all baptized by one Spirit. So how many Holy Spirits are there? One. One Holy Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now that's a very strategic verse. Every one of you belong. And this is the tragedy of the church in the United States today. We have turned the church into a business. We have. We have turned the church into a business run by professionals. I just spent an evening two weeks ago with a fella who shared with me very graphically, very powerfully, about a church family he's in. And the model is the pastor is like the president of the corporation. The board of trustees are just like the board of a business, like the stockholders. And what the stockholders do is they meet with the president of the corporation from time to time and they evaluate his performance. And he is responsible for running it. He is responsible for the ideas. He's responsible for the activity. He is the CEO, the chief executive officer. You got it? Now, what all we need to remember is that as Americans, our genius is business. And so anything we touch, we change it into a business. Now, that's good if you're talking about bringing, you know, selling tennis shoes in Texas. That can work great. Or selling cheerleader uniforms or selling cement or whatever you might do. It's great. Nothing wrong with it. But it's not the church. It's not the body of Christ. Now what happens when we begin to think like that? Someone's in the hospital, for example. Someone's in the hospital. This is what happens when you have a business mentality. I am the chief executive officer. So I need to be sure that this church family functions in a spiritual way to meet the needs of the people in the, in the hospital. So we get all organized, and I've got to be sure to be there and if I don't make it the first day, then the person that's a member of this corporation is hurt because I don't meet their needs. Now, I want to share with you something. In a given week, I work with maybe two broken marriages, maybe one attempted suicide, maybe two premarital counseling that's a great joy, maybe three or four other just, you know, encouragement context, maybe five discipleship groups. Now you start multiplying that out, and I can share with you. I can feel it. I'm getting close. I'm getting close to you reach that stage where I've just had it. Now what creates that feeling? I just had it. You know what creates it? When I start to think I am the chief executive officer. When I start to think that the whole thing depends upon me. When I start to think that I'm the one that has to meet all the needs. Because I cannot do it. And I'll be honest with you from the bottom of my heart. That is one of the besetting weaknesses of my life. From the time I've been a little boy. In order to feel loved, I want to do the work. I want to do everything. My personality is, I can do it. I'll work harder, I'll work longer, I'll go without sleep. And my motto is, if, if it needs to be done, just stay up until it's done. That's how I got my doctoral dissertation done. And what I want to share with you, you understand this well. That's not the body of Christ. In all kinds of little things. I cannot 
minister to all the people in the hospital like they need to be ministered. You know why? Because the people in the hospital need you. They don't just need me. I need to be part of it. But I'm just part of it. You're all part of it. And you know what? I want to share with you. You've taught me that again and again and again. Because I'll begin to drift maybe towards more of a professional model of the ministry. And one of our men will say, no, Dave, I'll handle that. You lay off of that. I'll take care of that. I can do that. And what I want you to know from the bottom of my heart is you can do it. You can do it. And don't let any professional ever tell you that you can't. You can bring incredible light into a hospital room. Do you realize that? Do you realize what this text is saying? You've been baptized with the Holy Spirit just as much as I am. So you're gathered together in a hospital room. And you're gathered together and I'm present there. And you're there as a member of the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit moves you. I really feel we should pray in this situation. Do you realize that you have every right to say, Dave, let's pray in this situation. Now what's the next line? And the professional model is let the reverend take care of it. People that don't really know Christ in a personal way, I do that constantly. And that's fine. If you don't know Christ, then you need to have the witch doctor to try to handle that religious side of life. You know, take care of the blessing. But you know what I notice among all of you who understand the body of Christ? Very seldom with those of you that are, that are really born again, that have really got into the Word, very seldom do you, do you ask me to do something like that. If I'm in a home with a daddy, the daddy will stand right up and say, I can pray right here. He doesn't say it like that. But he feels, I can thank the Lord. I'm a priest. I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to get out of work. I promise you I'm not. What I'm trying to say is, you can do it. You're gifted. You have the Spirit of God upon you. You can lead people to the Lord. You can bring great encouragement to people that are hurting. You can counsel. You can contact believers that are straying. And I need to help you to do that. I need to encourage you to do that. And if my pride causes me to feel, I want them to feel they need me, that I need to do the thing because then I'm sure to have a job, then that's sick. And that's exactly what happens. Many pastors, some of you would say, well, why, why haven't pastors encouraged me down through the years sometimes? Why do they give the impression they need to do all the things? Because we all think if we're needed like that, then we'll always have a job. The incredible thing is, the individual that knows how to equip others, that knows how to encourage others, that knows how to, to enable others and train them, will never be out of a job because they're desperately needed. Now there's two things we'll close with. You know, Paul goes on and says, if you look at an eye and you're an ear, if you look at an eye and you're an ear and you say, well, I'm not an eye, I'm just an ear, so I'm not part of the body, Paul says this. Does that mean that you're not part of the body? There's two things Paul closes this chapter with. It's the threat of excluding yourself from the body and it's the threat of making differentiations of importance within the body. Those two things. Let me say, first of all, it's the threat of excluding yourself from the body. You know what happens? As you start to work in the body of Christ, you look around and you say, well, I'm not like so-and-so. 
I'm not like Dave, or I'm not like so-and-so, or I'm not like that. So the next thing you know what you feel like, well, I'm not a part of the body. And I love Paul's statement. You know what he says? I want to share something with you. You can leave this church. You can get angry. You can do a million other things. But I want to share something with you from the bottom of my heart. You cannot get out of the body. You're it. You're in it. So you can be an eye and you can look in an ear and say, well, I got hurt. That ear just didn't listen to me like it was supposed to listen to me. And they didn't really meet my needs. I'm going to take my ball and go home. Go right ahead. But you're going to be unhealthy the whole time. Because ears don't work very well when they're not attached to the head. And fingers don't work very well when they're not attached to the hand. But you know what a real threat to the church is? People moving towards individualism. It's me saying, I don't need you. I don't need any close relationships. I don't need to depend upon anybody. I'll learn how to do everything. And I'll do it all. The great American individual way. Isn't that what some of you are thinking? I don't need anybody. I'll make in this life. I don't even need my own family. All my brothers and sisters do is chew on me. We get together for a family reunion, man. We're together for about a day and we start fighting. This family stuff, I'm fed up with it. Fight it through, brothers. You need it. And so do I. I trust that we've been studying today and the last couple times we've been together about the body of Christ and how each one of us need to accept the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us. We need to learn not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on how we can use the Spirit-given abilities to minister to one another. I trust that the Holy Spirit has used it to encourage some of you that might have done what I was just talking about. You've withdrawn from the body and you've gotten hurt and maybe even some of you have prayed for healing for yourself or for a child as we started out this program, and yet you feel that the Lord let you down and you're angry with Him. Oh, I trust that the Lord will use what we've talked about today to just cause you to go back to your study of 1 Corinthians, that you'll look at the kind of priorities and concepts that the Apostle Paul is presenting, and that you won't allow anger with God to cause you to withdraw from the body of Christ. We do need to be a people that have faith. And what we've learned today, that faith is not manipulating God and getting God to do what we want Him to do. Faith is believing in the character of God. It's believing in what God can do and that He is omnipotent. But faith, true faith, also recognizes that He is the sovereign of the universe and that He is the one whose will will be done and that we need to submit to Him and true faith does recognize the eternal perspective.